Hello, and welcome to my office. I'm Dr. Lucy McBride, and this is Beyond the Prescription, the show where I talk with my guests like I do my patients, pulling the curtain back on what it means to be healthy, redefining health as more than the absence of disease. As a primary care doctor for over 20 years, I've realized that patients are much more than their cholesterol and their weight, that we are the integrated sum of complex parts. Our stories live in our bodies. I'm here to help people tell their story and for you to imagine and potentially get healthier from the inside out. You can subscribe to my weekly newsletter at lucymcbride.com newsletter and to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So let's get into it and go beyond the prescription. My guest today is a supermom. Shannon Watts is the founder of the largest gun violence prevention organization in the U.S., Moms Demand Action. It was founded after the 2014 Newtown, Connecticut, Sandy Hook Elementary Massacre. She's also the author of the 2019 book, Fight Like a Mother. Shannon is a fighter. She fights and fights every day with her massive team of volunteers. They've gone up against gun lobbyists and pro-gun politicians alike. And needless to say, they're winning. But taking on an issue like American gun laws can put a huge target on your back. And today, Shannon will share with us what it's like to have a front row seat to some of the most horrific events in our country and how she manages her mental, emotional, and behavioral health in this charged climate. Shannon, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. You were a stay-at-home mom on December 14th, 2012. I will never forget that day myself. I remember exactly where I was. I was driving to watch my son, who was then in middle school, sing at a Christmas event. You were watching your television at home, saw with horror what happened to these children and to these families, and took action. You started a Facebook group that went immediately viral. Can you talk to me about that moment, Shannon, about what the feeling physically and emotionally you had when you read about what was happening in Newtown, Connecticut? I can see myself doing the laundry. I had a huge pile of clothes on the bed. You know, when you have five kids, doing laundry is a full-time job. And I really just had the TV on in the background to keep me company. Suddenly there was breaking news that there had been an active shooter at an elementary school in Newtown, Connecticut, a place I'd never heard of. And I sat down, I'm sure like you and so many others, and just was riveted for the rest of the day and was in tears and devastated and couldn't believe that right at the holidays, 20 children and six educators had been slaughtered in the sanctity of an American elementary school. When I went to bed, I was still devastated. What was interesting is that when I woke up the next day, I was enraged. I was so angry and I really didn't know what to do with all of the emotion that I was feeling. And I thought, you know, I have to get off the sidelines. I have cared about this issue. I've been concerned about this issue. I'm going to join a group. And I wanted to find something like Mothers Against Drunk Driving, which had been so influential to me in the 1980s as a teen, really changed the culture of driving while drunk. And all I could find when I Googled was think tanks, mostly in D.C., mostly run by men, some one-off city or state groups, again, mostly run by men. And I wanted to be part of a badass army of women, right? That's who I've seen change so much so quickly in this country over and over again. I honestly just started a Facebook page, not to start an organization, but to start a conversation. Like, why don't we have this? How can we get this? 
And as you said, it went viral. And quickly, what I thought was going to be an online conversation became the largest offline grassroots movement in the country. I felt a lot of those similar emotions. I remember arriving at the concert that my son was singing at with the knowledge that this was unfolding in real time as this group of innocent children was singing Deck the Halls with Bells of Holly. The range of emotions I think we all feel when we are watching on TV these horrific events is helplessness. I felt at least completely helpless, obviously devastatingly sad and angry. Anger is a normal emotion. It's a normal, healthy emotion in the face of trauma. It's interesting to me that you took that anger and used it as your rocket fuel to take action. So many people in this country, I think, feel helpless and unable to make any changes in their lives vis-a-vis gun violence. Take Black America, which is the victim of not just once in a while massive school shootings, but everyday gun violence in their lives. And I think there's so much helplessness and sadness around the country that this is woven into the fabric of some people's everyday existence. How do you think about the anger that people have about gun violence and how they could be helping and what they could be doing? And how do you look at your role as a way to kind of channel people's anger and helplessness? You raise such an important point. You know, when I started Moms Demand Action, I was concerned about mass shootings because I knew really nothing about gun violence in this country. I really didn't know much about the legislative process. I certainly didn't know anything about organizing. But what I quickly realized, along with all of our volunteers, is that, you know, mass shootings and school shootings are about 1% of the gun violence in this country. If you look at the gun violence, it's killing over 110 Americans, wounding over 200 more every single day. It is gun violence that disproportionately impacts black and brown communities. Gun homicides, gun suicides, mostly with handguns, that is the cause of gun violence in this country the driving force. And so it's so important, I think, that when people do decide to get off the sidelines, that they are educated about this problem, what causes it, what are the solutions, and how to look at it holistically. I'll just give you an example, and I think it's something we should all be mindful of. When there's a mass shooting that involves a semi-automatic rifle, the first thing often that white people do is to be outraged and call for an assault weapons ban. And I understand that, and I think there should be an assault weapons ban. But what we also need are background checks in every gun sale and to disarm domestic abusers and to have red flag laws and to pour money into community violence intervention programs. There's so much that will save so many lives. We have the data. We know what the solutions are, but we have to work toward those. And so that, I think, is an important part of this process, which is particularly for me as a white woman, to say to other white women who are a force, right, when they channel their energy in the right way, look at what is causing this problem and how you can impact it by partnering with other groups, many of which have been doing this work on the front line for decades without any attention at all. It's so great that you're talking about making changes in a holistic way. It's a lot like I think about patients, and certainly we should think about public health in a holistic way, not just treating the symptom and being outraged, lashing out on Twitter, which we will talk about in a minute, but rather looking at the sort of social, economic, structural, societal inputs that exist and that need work before someone even has a gun in their hand. Of course, we need common sense gun laws. Of course, we need assault weapon bans. Of course, we need all of those things. But that's really the tip of the iceberg. In fact, I saw you on Twitter this morning talking about a domestic violence tragedy that took the lives of innocent children in their homes. 
What interests me in particular in the conversation about gun violence is the sort of everyday trauma people are experiencing as a result of gun violence and how even if they themselves haven't been a victim of gun violence, if it's in your community, that's sort of like this slow drip of chronic trauma. There's no post to the post-traumatic stress. And then the other part of it that's interesting to me is this false dichotomy we set up about mental health and gun control. When let's acknowledge that complex problems require complex solutions. It's not enough to say that it was just the mental health of this kid who took the lives of the children and staff and faculty at Uvalde. It's also not enough to say, let's take guns out of the hands of young people. It is a holistic approach that we need. And I think until we hand people the actual facts and give people actionable things they can do, then I think a lot of us do sit around feeling helpless and angry and not knowing what to do. How do we take action? How do we turn that feeling of hopelessness and anger that we have when we're watching television about some event, the next one, and turn it into action? And I think that's what your organization is excellent at doing. Tell me what practical things you're doing right now. What are you working on? Well, look, I have been a full-time volunteer now for nearly 10 years, and I wouldn't wake up and do this work every single day unless I felt we were winning. And that is what keeps me going. It's what keeps so many of our volunteers all across the country going, is this knowledge that there's really been a sea change in American politics around this issue. You know, when I started doing this back in 2012, about a quarter of all Democrats in Congress had an A rating from the NRA. Today, none do. And I know that feels like incremental change, but it's actually a sea change. And you only get there by doing what I call the everyday, unglamorous, heavy lifting of grassroots activism. That doesn't have to be your full-time job, too. If you can just carve out an hour a week or a month, it is like drips on a rock, and it does all add up. We really go after this issue in three ways. We work on it electorally. So we work to elect gun sense champions, regardless of political party, at all levels of government. The other thing that we do is to work legislatively. We pass hundreds and hundreds of good gun safety bills that save lives, but also, and this is something I did not imagine when I started Moms Demand Action, we spend so much time playing defense (laughs) because the gun lobby is constantly trying to push bad bills through the legislature. We have a 90% track record of stopping the NRA every year for the last seven years in state houses across the country. Those are bills like arming teachers or permitless carry or expanding stand your ground. It's really important that we stop those bills. And then the third way we work on this is culturally, educating people about things like secure gun storage. You know, when we talk about school shootings, it isn't typically some shadowy figure that's coming in off the streets. It's a student. 80% of school shootings are by students who get their guns from home. We talk about all of these things and, and try to change the culture of gun violence. There are a lot of different things that you can be doing. I would say find a piece of this work that you're passionate about and just dig in. Spend as much time as you can, and that might not be a ton of time, but it does all add up. And we're not just moms anymore. We're mothers and others. We're students and survivors. And I would encourage people to just check out a meeting. Come to a Moms Demand Action meeting or a Students Demand Action meeting, and we will plug you in where you live. What does it mean to you personally, Shannon, to have a front row seat to some of the most horrific acts of violence in this country? How does it feel to see and read about and hold the family members who have lost loved ones to gun violence? You know, the first thing I would say is, as you mentioned, I am not a gun violence survivor. And the people who are, who wake up and do this work, 
every single day to save the lives of perfect strangers, to prevent other people from going through that same kind of pain, that's heroic. And that's why I'm inspired to do this work every single day. You know, for about 10 years, the first thing I've done when I wake up in the morning is to scan the news and to tell these stories that people wouldn't necessarily read about, right? It's not the mass shootings. It's the kids who were shot as they were walking home from school. You know, someone who's playing in the playground. It's someone who is shot at a drive through because of an argument over a fast food order. I do think that psychically that sometimes can wear on me and it certainly builds up. I have a personality that is very well suited. It's almost like an armor. You know, that same anger that caused me to start this organization is the same anger that sometimes masks or even shoves out of the way the anxiety and the fear and the sadness. Now, there are times when it builds up and I can remember several moments that honestly, I can't talk about probably without dissolving into tears. Oh, please. I pride myself on making people cry. So bring <laughs> Okay, well, here I go. There was this story about this kid who attacked a shooter at a college. And this kid looks so much like my kid. Mm. It was a Christmas Eve and I spent the whole day in bed crying about this kid. And my husband was kind of like, what is wrong with you? Not in a bad way, but like, should I be worried about you? You've been doing this for years and years and I've never seen you do this. It just sort of like all the fear and the anxiety and stress sort of bubbled up. I find that happens every once in a while. It just has to come out. I think it does. I think that's healthy. Holding anger and sadness and fear inside and not externalizing it isn't sustainable. And, you know, my patients who are dealing with trauma, whether it's an acute event or it's generational trauma that they're dealing with, it manifests physically. Yeah. I mean, you've probably read the book, The Body Keeps the Score. It really keeps the score. These are patients who then develop high blood pressure, you know, metabolic syndrome. There are myriad physical manifestations on the body of chronic stress. So it's healthy and good to cry and to mourn and to yeah. be. I've heard you talk about your practice of Buddhism, and I wonder what that means to you and what it does for you. Oh, you know, I am so grateful for Buddhism. When I found Buddhism, I was raised by a very, very strict Catholic father and spent my whole life going to Catholic school and, you know, catechism on the weekends and mass. And it never spoke to me. It just never felt like a compelling set of principles that gave me a way to sort of live with less suffering, which is really sort of the whole principle of Buddhism is that there is suffering and that there's a way to stop suffering by reducing the amount that you suffer. I have found it to be an important practice, not just for self-care, but also, frankly, with ego management. Mm. You know, I certainly never thought I was going to be leading a national organization. And I think if I didn't have this practice with killing my ego on a regular basis, it would be much more of an issue for me. I'm not saying it never is. I'm not a saint. But I do try to lead in a way that puts other people forward. So much of what I do on a daily basis as part of this organization is impacted by my practice. That's so interesting. The ego management. I know a fair amount about Buddhism. It appeals to me. I haven't leaned into it, but it really appeals to me for much of the same reasons you described. But can you just talk a bit more about the ego management? Because you are on a national stage quite a lot. You have had a lot of successes, a lot of victories. You have a lot of levers of power. And I think, especially in this day and age, it can go to people's heads. I mean, I think you've also had enough knocks and 
and dings. And I just know you from now and in general to be a humble, gracious, others-focused person. But I'm interested in this ego concept because I think we could all knock our egos back a little bit when we're talking about complex subjects like gun violence and trauma in America. I think it comes from a certain amount of self-awareness, right? So you have to constantly be checking in with yourself to say, am I leading in a way that is kind and good and beneficial? Or am I leading in a way that makes me feel better about myself? And again, this is a daily, hourly, sometimes by the minute struggle. And this is for me where meditation comes in. Meditation has helped me be more self-aware of my feelings, of the fact that these things are all temporary, that they are sort of figments of your imagination, that you create a situation that is making you feel jealous or angry or stressed. I try to see these thoughts as temporary as clouds. And as you get better at your meditation practice, that's how you can treat pretty much any situation in life. Now, again, I don't set myself up to say that I'm perfect and I struggle with this as much as anyone does. But I do think what it's brought me is a certain amount of self-awareness to say, is this appropriate decision? Is this an appropriate behavior based on right speech, right thought, all of the principles laid out by Buddhism? On that subject, you talk with your volunteers and you've talked in your book about this concept of losing forward. Can you describe that a little bit? Something that I realized early on was that we were going to lose a lot. We win more than we lose, thankfully, but we don't take on the most powerful, wealthy, special interest that's ever existed and win all the time. I didn't want people to say, oh, we've lost, then, you know, this is fruitless. I'm just going to work on another issue or I'm going to get back on the sidelines. And I do think there's something to be said for never giving up. Was it Jackie Robinson that said, you can't beat someone who refuses to lose? I don't know. I, I may be <laughs> attributing that to the wrong person, but there's basically this idea of you never lose if you refuse to give up. I'll just tell you the story of Arkansas really quickly. I would go to Little Rock and visit with the same handful of nice women over and over again for several months and years, and they weren't growing. And then what happened was a bill was put forward to allow guns on college campuses, including where alcohol was served at tailgates. And this so enraged, particularly women and moms in Arkansas, that we like grew exponentially overnight. And we could use that new strength in numbers to immediately go in and carve out an exemption so that at least you couldn't bring guns to tailgates. This sounds absurd. It does sound absurd. But that's what we did. And then, you know, the next year, two of our volunteers ran for office and won. And one of them was a retired nurse who beat the guy that put that guns on campus bill forward by 12 points. And then the year after that, we stopped Stand Your Ground, even though there was a Republican supermajority twice. None of that would have happened if we hadn't lost in the first place, right? So it's just this idea of learning from your losses, applying those learnings so that you win the next time and simply refusing to give up. In fact, our internal motto is keep going. I love it. It's such a good metaphor and message for life. I know you're a mom of five and parenting kids. I don't know if it's harder or easier than your job, the, the <laughs> activism, but I think if I try to tell my kids one thing or teach them or model one thing for them, it's fail better, learn from the mistakes, know that life is a process. And actually, we have to really lean into the process and not think so much about the outcome. Talk to me about what it's like to be the target of a lot of hate and vitriol. 
and how you respond to, for example, people on Twitter. I think you probably don't respond to all the like troll people, but how do you emotionally deal with that? And then how do you physically and behaviorally manage all of that vitriol that is piled onto you? I'm so glad I didn't know that was coming my way when I started Moms Demand Action because I probably would have thought twice about it. You know, immediately the death threats, the threats of sexual violence to me, to my kids started. I never imagined I'd be a public figure. So my home address was out there, my phone number, my email. On one hand, that was good because all these type A women would not leave me alone and they were coming into the organization and that was handy. But I just did not know there was this underbelly of America that existed that would want to kill me because I thought there should be a background check on every gun sale. Even today, you know, to public events, I have to go with a security guard whose job is to basically find the nearest hospital in case something were to happen. All that said, it goes back a little bit to my personality, which is trolling me is kind of like feeding a gremlin after midnight because you're just going to make me stronger and angrier and more effective. I will not be silenced. I will not be intimidated. So many of our volunteers feel that way. And let's be clear, it's not just these online threats. It's actually people who show up with guns at our meetings mm -hmm. or at our marches or our rallies or at state houses. They want to intimidate and silence us. And that was never the intention of the Second Amendment. I think in terms of behavior online, you know, I kind of a little bit go back to the Buddhism, which is the idea of right speech. I don't think I would be a very effective leader if I did not have my emotions under control. That doesn't mean there aren't tweets I haven't deleted or written in drafts and decided not to send. But you won't see me mocking people's appearance. You won't see me calling them horrible names. You won't see me engaging in what I think is problematic conversations. I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I really work hard at that. And this is a quote by my friend Glennon Doyle, which is, if you're not nice on the internet, you're not nice. And I do think it is important to have conversations that are grounded in data and stories and outcomes and not vitriol. Amen. And I think it's Buddhism. I think it's your personality. And I think you're obviously a grounded person. And can you describe what that felt like when you didn't have your wits about you like you do more now? I don't know if you know who Dana Lash is. Mm. She was an NRA spokeswoman. Oh, she yes. Getting, yes. Yeah. She ended up getting fired. She does not seem to be a very evolved human. So it, diplomatic the way you said that. <laughs> it was 2014. And I was at a mom's event in a park in Indianapolis. Had my kids there. And I turn around and she's coming toward me and she's on full television makeup, clothes and a television crew, right? And her whole goal is to kind of like intimidate me and to put me on the spot and ask me questions and really to confront me. And I think about that because I wish I just stayed. Instead, I left and got in the car because I didn't want to do that in front of my kids. But it was such early days. I mean, I'd only been doing this less than two years. And I kind of was scared of her because she seemed to have no boundaries and no filter and no compass in terms of truthfulness. But I do think I could handle that so much differently 10 years later and really put the spotlight back on her. I do think it ultimately backfired on her because there's a video of her trying to like chase me down at a park. Oh, God. But there were a lot of moments like that, both online and in real life where I just thought, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> I mean, no one prepared you for the life no. you now have or the breadth of work that you've taken on and what you've achieved. And so I'm sure you had to learn on the go. I really appreciate what you said about meditation and mindfulness and the concept of don't just do something, sit there, wait a minute, 
see your feelings and thoughts float by like a cloud and just give it a minute. All emotions are temporary and particularly on Twitter where I know you are a lot and I have been a lot and you have to be there because that's where breaking news happens and that's where journalists lives and that's where all the politicians are. You have to really be measured and yet you're really busy. And so I think for me at least and for a lot of people on Twitter, I think when they're triggered, it's easy to just lash out and say something you then regret. I think it's not only easy, I think it's the way the app is designed. Well, yes, exactly. It wants to bring out the very worst in humanity and it rewards you for that. And so it is really important to take a breath before you send that tweet with your hair on fire. I'm not saying I've never done it. I'm just saying that I try to live my online life in a way I won't regret. Tweet like your kids are watching. Exactly. Exactly. I really want to ask you something, Shannon. My career and really my person is founded on the concept that mental and physical health are inseparable and that mental health is relevant to our everyday health. We all have mental health. It's not an option. You can't like say, I'll be the human who doesn't have the mental health. I'll I'll take the cardiovascular health and the skin (laughs) health, but I'll bag the mental health part. Now we all have mental health. And one of my goals in my practice, seeing patients every day and then doing my more public facing work is to help normalize everyday mental health issues from anxiety to grief to mood instability to then help people get the help they need to prevent mental illness. One of my pet peeves, and that's understating it, is when there's a national event like a school shooting and online you see this false dichotomy It's the guns on one side. It's mental health on the other side. Can we not acknowledge that it's both? There's nothing mentally well about these typically young men, and we need gun regulation. I think it does a disservice to the movement, in my opinion, to not acknowledge that mental health is indeed part of the conversation. It's not either or, it's both and. I worry that the rhetoric coming from the left saying it's not mental health that stigmatizes mental illness and people with mental illness is actually depriving us the opportunity to ask these questions to society. How can we better serve young people who are victims of adverse childhood experiences, who have been disenfranchised in their communities, who have been victims of gun violence themselves, who haven't been nurtured by teachers, coaches, mentors, parents, who have experienced trauma, who have then spent too much time online and gotten a crazy idea and then something triggered them and they got a gun? Can we not talk about it as a both and instead of an either or? And can we not lose sight of the fact that complex problems require complex solutions? Totally in agreement and very thrilled that the recent federal legislation, the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, puts a lot of money toward mental health in schools and education. I think that's very important. There's a straw man Mm -hmm. that Republicans want us to believe that somehow we are a more mentally ill nation than our peer nations. And that's simply not the truth. In fact, we have same, if not lower, rates of mental illness than other developed nations. The reason we have a 25 times higher gun homicide rate and a much higher suicide rate, completed suicide attempts, is because we have easy access to guns. Yes. Amen. You're right. So it is absolutely both. I think what you see people on the left is stealing against this false 
argument by the right, which is that it is mental health. You know, when you look at the 30,000 or so, now it's over 40,000 gun deaths a year in this country, many of which are suicides. Certainly there's a mental illness component there that people are struggling with suicidal ideation, particularly post-pandemic. And then if you look at the homicides, 15 to 20,000, not all of those people are struggling with mental illness. Some of it is they're angry and they have a gun. So it is hard to parse out. And what I think you're seeing is people who are not seeing any gray, but it's just very black and white. That's right. Mental health is on a continuum. You know, where does mental health end and mental illness begin is somewhat subjective. You know, we don't have a blood test for PTSD, a blood test for anxiety or depression. My point being that one can have a challenging mental health situation and not have mental illness, and one can have access to guns, and it's all a big, awful intersection of horrible things happening at once that cause these people to act out. To say it's one issue or another and only one issue or another is really, I think, depriving us of discussing the gray and talking in a nuanced way. And I just think, you know, kind of like you were saying, the haters on Twitter or the trolls just make you stronger. I worry that, you know, the more we get into these false dichotomies, it just emboldens the other side. And where do we talk about these things in a more nuanced way? Where can we say, yes, let's get kids better mental health services so they don't end up isolated and a victim of online bullying? And let's not let them have guns. I think road rage is a good example. There is no other country, no other peer nation, where people are shooting each other as they drive down the highway. That is clearly easy access to guns, right? It's laws that have allowed people to have loaded guns in their cars, which is absurd. It is. But then there are other more nuanced issues where you're talking about school violence and gunfire in school grounds more in 2021 than has ever happened in the history that we have been tracking this issue. I think that's terrifying. And we're not just talking about mass school shootings. We're talking about shootings at football games or because of fights outside the school, bus stops. Clearly, there are mental health issues in this country. When someone has an issue, the first thing that those teachers or that school officials should be asking is, does this kid have easy access to guns? Because it's very likely in this country that he does. I do think those things need to go hand in hand. But, you know, the other frustrating thing is that so often you see Republicans blaming mental illness and then turning around and cutting funding for mental illness. Well, that's the thing. It's like, I mean, put your money where your mouth is. It's not about a tweet. It's about what are you doing? At the end of the day, you're not on one side or the other. You're for common sense gun laws and stopping the cycle of violence in our country. Why do you think it's schools that these young men in general go to? Why is it a school? They obviously do go to movie theaters or they go to malls, but like it's, it's often a school. What do you think that's about? It's a great question. I mean, often it's a student or a former student. It depends on whether you're talking about mass shootings or just the gunfire on school grounds. And, and often that's the result of an argument. People feel they need to protect themselves. It's retaliatory. Maybe it's anger or resentment. But you also have a lot of innocent people sitting in a position where it's difficult to escape. I don't know. I'm not sure I've even seen data or research to say why, but I don't know that we're safe anywhere in this country. I think you're right. I think you're right. It's interesting to me, just as someone who's always been fascinated in the idea of adverse childhood experiences, these traumatic experiences people have that then can carry with them through life and can cause later in life social, emotional, behavioral health problems. And I think people who haven't had their adverse childhood experiences dealt with 
They didn't have access to mental health services. They didn't have a supportive community or supportive family. The roots of their despair is in childhood. And so you can't help but think that these kids are going back to the place where they were bullied, left out. Maybe they were dyslexic or ADHD and not diagnosed. And it's a place to go back to where it all began. I don't know. I don't mean to be armchair psychiatrist or armchair psychologist, but you can't help but notice the patterns with these teenage young adult males in schools. But again, just to say it from the hilltops, mental illness does not kill people. Guns kill people. Right. And people who are mentally ill, significantly mentally ill, are much more likely to be victims of violent crime than perpetrators. What keeps you up at night? I mean, I think I know the obvious, like school shootings, day-to-day violence in black and brown communities, generational trauma from the pop, pop, pop of guns in people's neighborhoods every day. But for you personally, like what is it in your life that keeps you up at night and gives you anxiety? And then how do you manage it? When you look at this issue, what we did not predict was that the right would really embrace the NRA's agenda. I think we've done a good job of weakening the NRA as a lobbying organization over the last decade. They're hemorrhaging political dollars, political power, but the far right extreme in this country, and you can see this just in political ads involving guns, they have so embraced this very dangerous and toxic guns for anyone, anywhere, anytime, any place, no questions asked. I think that the idea that we're going to use the Second Amendment to quash the First Amendment rights of people, free speech, the right to vote, the right to protest, the right to a free and fair democracy. That worries me. That keeps me up at night because that is untangling something much more complicated than a special interest. And it's probably going to take generations to solve, but I love what you're doing is every day chipping away at this iceberg. You have to. Just use your spoon. Do you worry about your children growing up in this kind of America? And like, how do they handle mom being out there, mom needing security at these events? I mean, how do they handle it? And do you worry about your kids? I worry about them, I think, much more than they worry about me. You know, um, they're teens and young adults. So I think they always were like, oh, I'm so glad mom has a hobby. It's not (laughs) us. And, you know, my husband has never really expressed fear either. And I do think that's something very unique because... Had any of them said, like, I can't do this, you're causing me too much anxiety or I'm worried, I don't think I would have done it. That has enabled me to not have that additional sort of burden. But I do worry about them. You know, my son is on a college campus. I have a daughter who is a preschool teacher. And, you know, she has to do lockdown drills where she essentially puts babies to two-year-olds in a crib and rolls them out the door as if that is going to keep her safe from an active shooter. I do worry about all of them all of the time in this issue. And my husband says he thinks that because I live and breathe this, that I have a heightened sense of paranoia around safety and whether the kids are safe. And I think that might be true. But I don't know. I mean, you're an American. You're a parent. Like, do you feel that way, too? Like your kids could be unsafe anywhere. Yeah. I mean, I worry about my kids. I think it's sort of a occupational hazard of being a mother. And it's also like a hobby of them to be like, Mom, I'm fine, you know. (laughs) But I think, you know, they need us to worry a little bit to make sure that they know that we love them. I mean, I show my love in other ways, I promise you. I have two sons in college. I have one in high school. And I worry about their safety. I worry about drugs, alcohol, driving, gun violence. I worry about social connection, you know, getting lost on the Internet. All the things that we worry about for our kids. But it's a matter of time before each of us knows somebody or ourselves have experienced gun violence in this country. And that is unique to the United States. 
So active shooter drills in schools, controversial because practicing for a horrific event is useful, but it also can be uniquely traumatizing to kids. Like, where are you with that? If I had it to do all over again, I would not allow my kids to go through drills. You know, the data that I've seen and the data that we have in our reports shows that active shooter drills are shown to cause depression, to cause anxiety, to cause sleeplessness, worsening school performance. There's very little data that shows they're actually preventative, particularly for kids. I don't have an issue with administrators and teachers being drilled, but too often these drills, which by the way, school safety is about a billion dollar industry in this country. So they have to create these drills and then they make them simulate gun violence. There are cases where teachers are shot with rubber bullets or students are covered in fake blood in the hallway or strangers are hired to rattle the doorknobs. You know, it's almost like for a fire drill, setting a fire in the hallway. It just is absurd and it's obviously traumatic. So if I had it to do over again, I wouldn't have my kids do them. But that said, 40 states require them. They're done in over 90% of schools in this country. So I think it's really important for parents to, first of all, know that they deserve a heads up before this drill because they need to prepare. Their kids need to be prepared. They should never simulate gun violence. They should be trauma informed and they should be keeping data that shows what works, what doesn't. And it should be shared into other school systems and nationally. As long as people are informed and they have a sense of what the drills entail and when they're happening, you know, that's every parent's decision to make. Yeah, I think the hard part is the trauma kids can feel as a result of being in an active shooter drill. You know, it's hard to measure that. And not every kid has someone to talk to about how they might feel about it, which is the very issue with mental health to begin with. It's not measurable with a blood test or an MRI or easily with a questionnaire, especially if you're a kid. I'm glad to hear you say that because I think, you know, I wish that time, energy, and resources was being spent on community connection and listening and building and knitting together communities that I think we all need after the pandemic in particular to feel a sense of belonging and a sense of safety in our own spaces. We know the most effective way to prevent school gun violence is to keep guns out of schools in the first place. Right. So in California, where I live, we just passed a first of its kind law that requires every single student family to get secure storage notifications. So in other words, if you're a gun owner, you need to know that your gun should be locked, unloaded and separate from ammunition. Then you sign that and you send it back every family, regardless of whether you're a gun owner or not. That education is important because some people just don't know that. They don't know that their gun should be in a safe. They don't know that most school shooters are students. And so there's some really effective ways to keep guns out of our schools. And that's to keep guns out of kids' hands. You know, they don't grow on trees. They're coming from somewhere. We could go a long way toward keeping our schools safer if we could solve that. Shannon, you are amazing. I know you've heard that before. You're such an incredible leader. The humility you have and the self-awareness and the ability to regulate your own emotions, I think, is really a superpower, particularly when you are faced with some horrific stories and you're dealing with blowback yourself on a regular basis. And I just want to thank you for all the advocacy work you've done for energizing and mobilizing parents around the country. I wish you all the best. And I really hope you get some time off this weekend and can just (laughs) chill. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. And thank you for shining a light on this issue. Thank you all for listening to Beyond the Prescription. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, 
download and share the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you catch your podcasts. I'd be thrilled if you like this episode to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question, please drop us a line at info at lucymcbride.com. The views expressed on this show are entirely my own and do not constitute medical advice for individuals. That should be obtained from your personal physician. Beyond the Prescription is produced at Podville Media in Washington, D.C.